Hello, everyone. Welcome back to Danger on Delmarva, a podcast that explores the tragedies and disasters that have occurred on the Delmarva Peninsula, an area in the Mid-Atlantic region that encompasses Delaware, Maryland to the east of the Chesapeake Bay Bridge, and Virginia to the north of the Chesapeake Bay Bridge Tunnel. My name is Rhonda Franny Jefferson, and I will be your host to take you down the sometimes winding and treacherous paths that wind around Delmarva. Delmarva is a little piece of heaven that has tax-free shopping in Delaware, beautiful beaches, and majestic wild ponies that roam some of these beaches. Also, just a reminder that I do use a couple of descriptive terms in Um, the actual titles of the podcast now. I've noticed that some of the events took place, you know, quite a while ago, as will the events of this episode. So I will label the um, episode as dated danger. So again, not dating, but actually dated danger. So it shows that that episode is a little older than, you know, some of the more recent events. I do want to add that I appreciate everyone's patience with getting this week's episode out. When I went to try to record on Wednesday, we were under a tornado warning and also a flash flood warning. The internet went out a couple of times um, as well as you know, even though we have surge protectors, I really don't like having my computer plugged in when it was that bad. And it was a pretty bad storm. Um, my father also um, had just been released from the hospital that day, and he was staying with us that night. Um, he wanted to go home, but because of the tornado warning, you know, we felt that it was really best that he stay with somebody. And yeah, it was a a very busy day that day as my children have also started school. So a lot was happening and in some ways I'm glad that there was that little bit of a delay because I actually found out more information about this topic as well as listened to a podcast when I was cooking that actually had a pretty good example of what I was really trying to say in this episode. So before I do begin this story, I want to say that this podcast reflects my personal interest in the exploration of how or why an event occurred to try to understand the reasoning behind the acts and decisions of others. I've obtained facts for this information through all publicly available sources. The podcast is produced for informational purposes only, and as I've gleaned the information from these publicly available sources, I cannot guarantee everything involving accuracy, completeness, or validity. I or my podcast cannot be held responsible for any errors, misinformation, and time delays, such as there are further updates after the publication of the episode. However, in this case, that's really not applicable, as it's not in some of the other episodes as well. But also, as a warning, some of the episodes may discuss injury, death, emotional and mental health, and may contain some triggers regarding certain instances. Just as a reminder, all sources that I've used in this episode will be linked in the description. So, when you do think of an event that can shape a town, or you know any area for that matter, you may not think of actual destructive forces. When we think about development of a town, we may think of schools being built, community centers being staffed by people who want to genuinely help, but we don't think of a disaster as an event that can actually shape and mold and even improve the way we live. I could argue that disasters actually have more of an effect on the way that we live than any other type of event. And this podcast actually is a testament to that, as one of the things that we want to look at 
is trying to find those pieces that caused an event to happen so that we can try to prevent it from happening again. But when we do think of destructive forces, what do we think of first? I know myself, I think of fire. And, you know, right now that can be seen in many parts of the country. And actually all over the world each year, there are fires that rip through just massive areas of land, burning trees and forest in the wild, dislocating or killing countless numbers of animals and destroying some of their habitat. The fire does not discriminate. These forces are some of the most costly in terms of money, terms of impact to the environment, and most importantly, impact to human life. An event can also show a town its weaknesses. It may serve as a driving force to make changes to an infrastructure that has been begging for changes. Unfortunately, in some places, it takes a little longer or even to have a repeat of history to make these changes happen. So today we're going to explore the little town of Delmar, Delaware, or Delmar, Maryland. It's actually in both states. And there is a saying that Delmar is the town too big for one state. So to get an understanding of Delmar, let's take a look at this little big town. So of course, as I've just mentioned, Delmar is actually in both Delaware and Maryland. Looking at the town today, I know some people who live there and they'll have a Delaware area code for their phone but a Maryland zip code, though sometimes, you know, in this day and age, that's not such a big deal because most people are using cell phones that may have different area codes. Um, but you may also have a Delaware zip code, but go to a school that's technically in Maryland. So sometimes things can get confusing. The town itself was established in 1859 and it was built on the railroad. The Delaware Railroad had extended its rails to the Maryland border, and in some ways this was actually fortuitous in the building of a new railroad town. So it was actually pretty lucky. The respective states' charters for each of the railroad companies prohibited the building of a railroad in another state. So the Delaware, Delaware Railroad Company's charter would only allow them to build a railroad with tracks laid only in Delaware. And the Maryland Railroad Company said the same thing, only allowing tracks in Maryland. So the two tracks met and Delmar was born, with these tracks literally joining the two states. Now, there were some large landowners near the southern Delaware border that allowed the right of way of the railroad on their property and they even donated some land. Now this next information is from the Del Mar Library, their website, and I'll be using a direct quote from there. These landowners were Elijah Freeney and Winder Hastings and Freeney donated land for the terminal itself. Freeney also built the first home and store in the newly forming town. And of course, with the railroad comes railroad workers and their families, and with the families comes the need for stores, businesses to support the needs and wants of a growing community. The town grew slowly but steadily, and when in 1884, the New York, Philadelphia, and Norfolk Railroad built a railroad that joined a nearby town to Delmar, this town being Pocomoke City, to Cape Charles, Virginia. And with an increase in ferry services to Norfolk, Delmarva received a jolt of importance in its role as a railroad town and also as a link between the Northeast and Southeast. It became a railroad hub where crews would change off, where trains could be serviced for maintenance and many more railroad workers moved to town. And as before, it brought natural growth with the number of stores and services needed for the town. 
I think those two property owners were pretty sly. You know, I think that they had the foresight of knowing what a railroad would do to the surrounding areas with people and businesses grasping for land that they owned, therefore sometimes willing to pay a pretty penny. Now, as the town grew, it seemed that the two halves functioned independently. The town charter for the Maryland side did not address that it had a sister town next to it. The first mention of a joint project was the building of a joint sewer system. Maryland took the bill and charged the Delaware side for half of the total cost. Over time, though, the towns began to function more as a unit until eventually the school systems joined. That was not something that was easily adopted with there being much opposition to the consolidation, but this really did benefit all involved by bringing the best characteristics of each school system together to make one stronger unit. So what happened to this town? In 1892, this town showed a resilience and strength of the people who lived there. But there was a fire, a huge fire, that covered acres of land and destroyed everything in its path. Now, when we think of some of the most destructive fires of all time, we might think of the Great Chicago Fire or the London Fire, but did you know that at the same time that Chicago was burning, there was another fire and approximately the same geographical area, area, and this fire caused damage to many more acres of land, killed many more people, and displaced more families than we can even imagine. It was literally happening, happening the same night as the Chicago fire. But as the areas were so remote, news about the Chicago fire made the media headlines first. So to compare these, the Great Chicago Fire happened between October 8th and 10th in 1871. The Chicago Fire killed approximately 300 people, destroyed approximately 3.3 square miles of the city, and left more than 100,000 residents homeless. The Peshtigo Fire was on October 8th, 1871 in northeastern Wisconsin and parts of the Upper Peninsula of Michigan. And as the largest community that was actually affected was Peshtigo, Wisconsin, the fire was named after that particular city or community. But this fire burned approximately 1.2 million acres. So that's 1.2 million acres and it is the deadliest wildfire in recorded history, with the number of deaths estimated between 1,500 and 2,500. Now, the, that town or that area really worked in a lot of the lumber industries, and not everybody really set up a permanent residence where everybody's name was logged or cataloged, so that when all was said and done, when the 1.2 million acres were done burning, we they could really only estimate how many people had died. So the reason I'm mentioning this is not in any way to downgrade the Chicago fire. What I am trying to say though, is that the more rural locales did not have the same ability to receive the outpouring of help as those in the larger cities would have. With the Chicago and the Peshtigo fires, much of the nation had already donated money to help those in need after the Chicago fire. And by the time that the news reached the, out, the news outlets about the Peshtigo fire, many Americans either could not or would not give any more. So at this time in American history. Many cities during this time did actually have very large fires. When reading an article about the Del Mar fires, one article actually had a paragraph that by itself said, 
another peninsula town has been reduced to ashes. The fire of last Tuesday was the first considerable blaze in the little tiny town ever suffered, and during its progress, many landmarks were destroyed. So at least to me, these sentences make it seem that fires really were commonplace. So when we do stop and think about the conditions of these times, it should be pretty obvious as to why some of the fires you know, did occur. Houses were primarily built of wood. And at that point in time, electricity was not really common among the houses. So, and this was referring to the Delmar fires. So at these times, it meant that open flame sources were still being used for lighting and cooking. And there was definitely no electric stovetop range here. So, you know, something could happen in the middle of the night and it could take hold devastating an entire neighborhood or whole community. Now, speaking for myself, I just have to say, I don't think I would do very well in this um, era in time. And it's not even to do with some of the conveniences that we have, such as computers or cell phones but I am literally always cold. When it's 90 degrees outside, I will have a space heater on. So since there really wouldn't be any electricity in the house and I could not run a space heater and I'd have to rely on a fire that might be in another room to keep me warm, yeah, I, I don't think I would have been okay. But I've also always had this fear of fire and I think it may be something that was ingrained in me as a child. Now, even though it happened before I was born, my family's house had burned down. I heard stories of how my siblings had to try to escape the fire. And even when I was in college, I would actually walk around and to the best of my ability, touch all of the electric sockets just to make sure that none of them were hot. However, it really wasn't feasible to go into each person's room because I'm pretty sure the occupants would look at me like I was, you know, invading their space so I just kind of had to give in and accept that I could not go in you know, to anybody else's room but for a lot of my adult life that continued and I was just always worried that you know something would happen because of fire around the outlets and just to say, it really didn't help that when at one point in time, there actually was a fire um, that started behind an outlet in a house that I was living in. So just when I think I'm safe, you know, something like that happens. But I have learned to let go a little bit in regards to that. But back to Del Mar and its fire. The first fire was in August of 1892. On August 16th, after things had finally settled down, someone sent an urgent plea by telegram to Wilmington, Delaware to ask for help. Now, just to give some perspective, it's probably about a two hour drive right now from Del Mar to Wilmington, depending on how fast you drive, um, if there's a lot of traffic, for me, it would probably be closer to two and a half hours because I drive a little bit slower. But thinking of it then in terms of 1892, it was really a considerable distance to travel. But this telegram read, Town entirely burnt. Can't you send us something to eat? This is honestly one of the most heart-wrenching things that I have ever read. It's very short, but to realize how much that everyone had lost. Even the livestock had died, leaving everybody with literally nothing. So just hearing those short sentences in that telegram just shows the utter destructive nature that the fire brought upon this small town. And even though it was so many years ago, more than a century, I sometimes get chills thinking about this, that such a desperate message had been sent, not asking for money or blankets or clothes, but asking for even the most basic of needs. 
And this message was sent from probably a place that I've once stood, whether it was while I was having dinner at a restaurant or waiting in line at a store or one of many other mundane tasks, that particular telegram could have been sent from where I was standing. Going back to 1892, earlier in the day, a fire began that would take down the homes of pretty much all of Del Mar's residents. There was an empty room that was above a candy store and a lot of the local boys would, in today's terms, hang out there because of the room status as being a, a hangout for these young boys it was theorized that they did something that started the fire and not necessarily stating that they did something intentionally but it could have just been an act that a young boy didn't necessarily think much of such as sneaking a cigarette away from his parents and putting it out too quickly or tossing it into some garbage but the fire moved quickly and according to one report that i read it took about only four hours for the, for the destruction to take place. It also seemed that the railroad tracks that ran through the town acted almost as a buffer to prevent the fire from spreading over um, even further. Areas from the railroad tracks through the east of town really marked the line, so all of the areas east to the railroad tracks were destroyed. And in case you didn't touch, catch the time frame earlier, it was four hours. In that short period of time, really half a work day, much of the town was gone. Many of the buildings were connected and the fire quickly spread from the candy store, then to the post office and so forth. Some people believe that the fire actually started in the post office though um, just based on the location, I find it more likely that it started in the empty room of the candy store as that room was not really monitored. You know, and I'm also going to go with the candy store as the way it's believed to have started in the post office is that a mouse ignited a match and a sugar barrel that was in the post office caught fire. Now, granted, I know that many matches of the time were made of phosphorus, which would actually light up as soon as it hit the air. I remember watching some older um, movies or movies that were set around this time period where the matches were kept in um, like under glass or something like that to prevent them from actually lighting. So, you know, I can see where you know, just having that type of match come in contact with air could possibly, you know, let that happen. But I'm still going to go with the candy store as the option. You know, much like Mrs. O'Leary's cow, I really don't think that this happened with a mouse striking a match. Within a half an hour, a block that was in the center of town was completely ablaze. There was also a hotel in that same area and that soon became, became engulfed in flames as well. The town reacted as quickly as they possibly could with many people running from the center of town to their homes to try to muster what they could save. One of the most interesting things and most important that was saved was the railroad telegraph set so that this would enable someone to send messages out to surrounding areas. And also somehow the railroad managed to save the cash and tickets. But meanwhile, most people were just wondering how they would survive. You know, now, something that we also have to remember is, you know, in 1890, someone could not just pick up the phone or pull a lever to indicate that there was a fire and the city of Del Mar at this time did not have a, you know, water main or any type of water system. So the residents of the town formed what is called a bucket brigade. So, you know, if you've ever seen a show where there may have been a fire and, you know, again, set in the late 1800s, maybe even mid 1800s, the bucket brigade was 
just everybody who was available standing in line with buckets being passed back and forth through the line with water to try to put out a fire. Now, you know, we can probably assume that this was not very efficient. By the time everything went through, it was just one small bucket going onto a raging inferno. By today's standards, we might even say it seems like they were spitting into a fire to try to put it out. But they did the best that they could, not giving up even though the fire quickly overtook every part of town. They used every resource available, so you know, this is where the fact that this was a railroad town with rail service um, playing a big part in putting out the fire. The railroad had a water tank for use, and they used engines to bring the water from that water tank to help with the fire. Um, the request had also been sent to a Salisbury, Maryland fire service, but by the time Salisbury was able to pull everything together and they would have to actually put it on a train to get through um, you know, in the quickest way, you know, it's not like they could arrive in just a few minutes. It actually took them a couple of hours to get everything together and you know, put everything on the train to go to Delmar. Also, there was another town, Clayton, Delaware, which again, this shows that there was cooperation from two different states. And I have to say Clayton really is not the closest town to Delmar either, but thankfully they were able to lend a hand. And as, you know, again, no water system, you know, the town had, I have heard this, that the town had actually not approved a request um, earlier to have a main water system. So, you know, hindsight's twenty twenty. I guess we can say with that. Now, water was being sent to the town via what, you know, at that time would be considered high-speed rail. You know, at that point in time, if it was able to cover a mile, in around one minute that was considered extremely fast. So hour after hour, the houses fell and the businesses collapsed. And though they were not seeing the fruits of their labor by having the fire reside, the residents of the town got their second wind and still tried to work on saving what they could within the town, even using wet blankets thrown over houses to try to dampen the materials within. It can also be noted that not long before this, the fire town had not improved um, a new water system and they could have really greatly, you know, helped in fighting this fire. And desperate measures were also taken to try to stop the spread of the fire including tearing down houses that were on fire to stop the spread. In, any, in an event that was so devastating, newspapers looked to find how many people died within the catastrophe. Early headlines offered a grim report, including quotes such as, one charred body in the ruins, and another noted that a woman was taken to Wilmington and it will, she will probably die tonight. However, it was soon found out that these reports were either misunderstandings or maybe even just outright lies to try to sell papers. However, nobody was seriously hurt and the only minor injury came from a man who was trying to save his wife's sewing machine. Now today we might you know, look at that and think, why was he trying to save a sewing machine? But it was not uncommon for women to make clothes for the family, or to make curtains or linen or anything else that they would need to have sewn. So this could have really been a lifeline for the family. And also, who knows, maybe she used the sewing machine as a way to make a living as well. Now, another man, Dr. Joseph Wright, had actually just built a new house, and he was scheduled to move in. But... After all that excitement and anticipation of moving into a new house, it was gone before he even got to move in. And tragedy can also bring out 
for you know lack of a better word scavengers and of course this is of the figurative sense the owner of a motel which I'm sure did much business being in a railroad town was a Mr. T.A. Vesey and he was approached by a man from Cincinnati who offered him 4,000 cash for the property but Mr. Vesey declined. Now if we look at the amount of damage that it caused just in terms of monetary loss at the time the estimates were between seventy-five dollars and $150,000 which looking at it in today's money would sound really, really good if it was just 150,000, but it is really the equivalent of two to four million. And honestly, for the number of houses that burned, you know, that, that figure seems pretty low. And I know that many suffered devastating losses of their homes and their livelihood, and they even lost any extra clothes or items that were sentimental to them, you know, but there were still no deaths linked to this particular fire. So faced with utter destruction of everything that they had, many people would need to rely on the help of friends, family, and even complete strangers. I have to believe that the railroad recognized the importance of this junction as more and more aid came in via the railroad and they decided not to charge for carting the freight. Some people were offered places to stay in Salisbury or other neighboring towns, but more aid came in other directions and the railroad provided you know, even more goods or free freight charges. Work commenced within a month to supply some temporary shelters for the residents. And you know, within less than a year of this happening, um, much of the business district had actually been rebuilt and some of the items were or some of the houses were actually rebuilt in brick um, and M.H. German a prominent brick manufacturer actually was able to build a house in the area now while the long-term aspects were seen um, such as the amount of time it would take to rebuild um, the residents really had those more immediate needs, such as the food that you know, we mentioned. Now, also looking at individuals as you know, what they had to go through day by day and how they would rebuild individually, you know, I found it um, you know, actually pretty interesting because the newspapers included a lot of information about individuals that actually lost things. So um, noted in one article was a Mr. B.W. Freeney had a house on the site of his burned butcher shop. The railroad company has a temporary station house completed and several other rough structures are up. The unfortunates whose homes were destroyed are residing for the time with those of their neighbors who were not burned out. Mr. Simons and her daughters are guests of Dr. F. M. Simmons of Salisbury. So this was a direct quote from one of the newspaper articles. And we can see that compared to articles of today, this is something that would not be reported. But going through the rest of the day and into the night most people did not have somewhere to stay and again more importantly did not have something to eat and while you know there may have been livestock at one point the livestock had actually burned and so everything that they had was really really gone there was not hardly anything that could be saved so there was a committee that was quickly formed to try to obtain cash aid and soon over $440 had been raised and this was done by you know some of the people who were in Wilmington after they had received these pleas now I also have to wonder what would happen if there was a devastating fire that happened when Delmar was smaller you know before the railroad had moved to town now the water and aid that was sent via the rail that just wouldn't have happened if this had happened at an earlier time 
such as shortly after the town was established. Now, also, they may or may not have been able to receive any other items coming to the town because, again, they weren't on the rail service. Now, lastly, the telegram that was sent requesting aid may not have been sent. Now, the telegram itself was invented in 1844, so prior to even the town forming, but if the town was extremely small, they may or may not have actually had a machine that they could use. So the railroad really did both help build the town and also help save it. Now, going back to one of the interesting facts before how a newspaper actually gave a lot of detailed information about what occurred to the individuals as they were impacted you know, by the fire. So, you know, reading through some of this information, it really shows that a lot of people were either underinsured or not insured at all. So to give some examples, um, Joseph W. Hastings, residents valued at 1300 insured for 800 Dr. Ellagood, drugstore and bedroom set, $2,000, insured 1200 so again, in these two, it's underinsured. W.S. Marvel, residence, barn, Smith shop, 3,500, total loss. J. Cooper and Wilson store and stock of goods, 7,000. Insurance, 4,500. B.W. Freeney, we, see, we hear that name again. A greengrocer, $1,000 loss, no insurance. So as an industry or as the town and actual time period was going through a lot of industrial changes, you know, these changes were very rapid and there were advancements that could take place in far of, as far as things like transportation, electricity, plumbing, you know, sourcing water for an inland community such as this was. They were all becoming more commonplace in towns and surely Delmar would really have wanted to take lessons learned and improved their water sourcing and you know try to create a more efficient infrastructure you know though they may not have actually used that word or term at the time you know having this fire occur really should have you know move it moved everybody to you know make the necessary changes make the town stronger than ever, and make sure that this does not happen again, right? Well, as 10 years would pass with no fire department in sight, Delmar would again suffer the devastating effects of a fire. Now, this took place in October of 1901, and it began in a barn, and Mother Nature lent a hand to the spread as there were heavy winds that were going through the town that night. To the point that you know it took a very short time for 50 houses to catch on fire and that's 50 five zero so once again Salisbury and Wilmington were telegraphed for aid Salisbury trains were able to get there in actually less than five minutes this time and the distance was actually over six miles so they were actually moving a lot faster than they were in the time of the first Del Mar fire. Now, once again, the town had to endure a blaze without a water system. So knowing that help would be coming, crowds gathered at the train station and when Salisbury's train moved into the station, men, women, and children brought the firemen's tools and carts to have them taken to town. But remember, the town has no water. So to quote from an article, necessity aided the frantic citizens to devise a clever scheme to get water. Two locomotives ran to the Delaware Railroad pumping station, filled their tanks with water, and returned to a point where they could be connected with the fire engines. A traction engine was also utilized in this way and this work resulted in the saving of the Delaware Railroad Station, the bank, the Methodist Episcopal Church, and the business of Elijah Freeney. And here's another Freeney. 
Now, not to keep saying this phrase, but once again, the fire spread rapidly. It only took about two and a half hours, and the Delaware side of town was, for all intents and purposes, gone. Once again, innocent animals, including many pets, were not able to be saved. And once again, people were homeless and hungry. And as this took place in October, there had to be a sharp chill in the air. Some stores had been saved, but the goods within were described as unfit for consumption. And once again, Salisbury rose to the occasion. Food was sent via rail, of course, and town officials for Salisbury quickly formed a committee, and again, a committee was able to help out with trying to obtain food and other necessities that were donated. And as we can see, while the town rebuilt from the 1892 fire, they had not made some of the necessary improvements that really would have helped either prevent or better take care of this fire. Now, one improvement that really was on the docket but not yet done was to have electric street light lights. But the future of it at that time was uncertain as many people looked at the town and thought having a water suppressant system, which was actually a thing back then, so that was pretty interesting. You know, so, you know, taking other precautions that might have been able to be done to, you know, prevent this from happening again. Now, of course, there were still so many affected, and mainly they just had the pressing concern of making sure they had food and water. The damages that took place in the second fire was estimated to be around 100,000, sorry, 100,000, which is more like 3 million today. And as we can probably guess, town representatives voted and approved a new water system to be placed. It also led to many of the residents and business owners in the town to rebuild the buildings using brick instead of wood now as well. The town also held a fundraiser so that they could buy a fire engine and establish the fire company. However, a formal fire service was not established until 1921. And even more unbelievably, they did not have a water system that was capable to be used for fire suppression until 1911, 10 years after the second fire. Now, one of the gentlemen who lived in the town was a man named Levin Hastings, and he was a prominent resident, but he really lost heavily in the second fire. He had a number of stores that were destroyed, and he also had four dwellings and even a whole stock of goods that were destroyed in the fire. And I'm thinking, as far as having four dwellings, I almost wonder if he either rented the whole house out or if they were a type of boarding house, which, you know, in a railroad community you know, would seem pretty common. He lost about $25,000 in property and he only had $2,900 worth of insurance. And there's another gentleman I'm going to talk about in a moment, um, but you know, Mr. Um, Hastings was a very, very big loser of property on that day. And he had also lost a lot of items in the first fire. So he was severely crippled financially and you know, it probably took a lot for him to overcome that. Now, um, Mr. Hastings' daughter, um, Miss Alice Hastings, she was supposed to be married about a month later on November 5th. Um, Mr. Hastings had actually presented her with a home so that she and her new husband could move in after the wedding and they were going to go on a trip, you know, a honeymoon after the um, wedding, but now you know, everything that they had as far as, you know, goods were destroyed. Um, the furniture, everything that had been used to, you know, make a house a home had actually, you know, gone up in flames in the fire. 
but there was a trousseau which for those who may not know what a trousseau was used for what it was at this time a trousseau was basically linens um, you know tablecloths curtains uh, things like that um, that a bride would have before she married and also some clothes as well that um, the bride would have so you know it's not really a term that you that's used much today you know but some of the things that people will get for say a wedding shower or actual wedding gifts some things like that would be included in the trousseau if it was a linen item so she went from probably having um, you know one of the best months or weeks of her life knowing that her wedding was coming up and then you know she lost it all but thankfully nobody in that family was hurt now the gentleman I was saying I would discuss in a moment um, was a pretty notable person in the town of or in the um, state actually not just the town of Delaware but the whole state his name was a William Sermon and Mr. Sermon was Speaker of the Delaware General Assembly and he did have some businesses in town town and he lost both of his stores and his house in the 1892 fire and he did not have insurance on either of the structures and in a streak that must have made him the unluckiest man in Delaware even prior to the 1892 fire he had already lost two mills to fire and you know after the first one he did try to bounce back and he said that he was going to build the finest house ever built in Delmar but you know to continue his streak the fire that beset Delmar in 1901 actually started in his barn and for some reason I guess because I had you know written about um, or mentioned the Chicago fire all I kept thinking of was Mrs. O'Leary's cow, you know, along with the improbability that a mouse could light a match to start a fire. You know, I, I just had these thoughts in my mind when, you know, I found that out about Mr. Sermon. Now, in a, another horrible, horrible, you know, aspect to this, three weeks before the 1901 fire, he had decided to let his insurance lapse because it cost too much. The total amount of his losses was $20,000, which would equate to approximately $600,000 today. And, you know, he did stay in Delmar and he passed away in 1919, but he did so, you know, being actually pretty poor at this point in time. So, what can we learn from these examples of fires and of history repeating itself? You know, in the case of Mr. Sermon and Mr. Freeney, it really did seem to repeat itself multiple times. So, sometimes you have to spend money to save money. And, you know, the town, I guess, had really not looked at it that way in terms of a fire or water system that could be used for fire suppression, which was available at that time, according to all um, reports that I read regarding the matter. So, you know, looking at things on a much smaller scale, um, we face these situations every day, you know, but of course with lesser consequences. So, you know, when you know, you're at the gas station, you might question, should I use regular, mid-grade, or premium? You know, there's a big difference in price, but you have to try to figure out, okay, if I use regular, will you know, that hurt my vehicle? High-performance vehicles sometimes need the um, mid or premium grades, so you have to be sure to understand you know, how the car works, um, what's best to use for it, and whether or not you really need to spend that extra amount to prevent any maintenance issues in the future. And, you know, it could also be with other types of goods, such as electronics, which are a good example, because, you know, you could buy, say, a tablet that 
you know, is only two and a half stars rating, but, you know, is pretty inexpensive. Or you could buy a tablet or electronics device that is by a major manufacturer with a much higher rating. Yes, it may be even double the price as the, you know, lesser tablet, but you have to think, you know, how strong is the tablet? If it's dropped, even with a bumper um, or a case, will it still break, which has actually happened to one of my children, you know, or should I go ahead and spend the extra money? So, you know, these are on the much smaller scale, but for Delmar, you know, we do have to realize that even if they had voted on getting the water suppressing system, it may not have been, you know, completely finished or up and running at that time. And, you know, they, I guess they would have had to look at it and think, okay, is the cost of this, you know, going to be offset by the advantages that it brings? And we can see in this case, it would have been more you know, advantageous just to go ahead and get the water system. You know, again, it may not have been available for use at that time, but the town would have recognized the need for that. Now, coincidentally, I was listening to a podcast, um, you know, this week, and one of the podcasts was about a ship collision that cost, you know, I believe it was over 40 lives and injured many others, and it caused the trauma you know, of people seeing people that they loved pass away or not being able to get to them. So it also damaged both boats. This is the story of the Andrea Doria and also the Stockholm. Some people say that if there had been a light bulb that was attached to one of the displays, that that one light bulb could have prevented this from happening. Also, you know, again, on the same day and only a few moments later, I had turned on YouTube and um, saw another person. Now, the first um, podcast was called The Dark Side of Wikipedia, and I will attach a link to that. Um, very interesting story of the Andrea Doria. I've listened to a number of different podcasts um, or you know, documentaries on that, and it was actually the first time I had heard that piece of information. Now, on the second, um, second thing that I watched or listened to was, you know, from Mr. Ballin, and he does a lot of like shorter stories, but there was a horribly coincidental event that took place um, where a young woman lost her life because of a tire that came off a tractor trailer. Now, for want of, say, a small three or four dollar um, washer on one of the tires, then it would not have happened. So either just spending money on an item like that, which I think in this case it probably was more of an oversight that you know they did have the item you know available, but somehow they just missed you know installing it or putting it on a couple of the lugs. And I will admit I am not really, really good with you know, tractor trailer tires. So that's the thing that I'm envisioning is, you know, they probably did a walk around or maybe even to save a little bit, bit of time, didn't do a complete inspection. So for either that little piece of metal or for the few moments it would have taken to you know, do a walk around, something very simple, a person lost their life. So these are, again, just examples of how sometimes you have to invest a little bit more to make sure things stay safe and so that you won't lose you know, even more money. For a small town rebuilding at this point in time, I also think the morale of the townspeople really would play a part in you know, the rebuilding of the city. But, you know, I, I wonder if not having at least a water system that was capable of fire suppression you know, around, if that could have cut down on the morale of some of the townspeople. Now, if you do listen to this podcast on a regular basis, you may know that I think a lot of things that happen come down to complacency. 
And this isn't really different, any different. You know, even though fires were known to spread through towns very quickly, not just Del Mar, there may have been a feeling that it won't happen again. Like the saying that lightning won't strike twice in the same place, but it actually does. So I wonder if the people, after some months as they were rebuilding, maybe another winter had passed of them using fireplaces and candles, as seasons passed, did they start to feel more comfortable again and maybe didn't necessarily check things as carefully as before, you know, beginning to really think that it wasn't necessary to be quite as cautious. Now, of course, we can't know for sure, but you know, I think we also, again, see this sometimes in everyday life. So a few, to give an example, um, like a few years ago, I was in a car accident and it was from someone who was on the other side of the road and I was able to swerve and get out of his way the best that I could. But, you know, after, you know, having the accident, then having a rental car, um, you know, brought to my house, I then had to go to, to the salvage yard and get some of my um, personal items from you know, the, the actual car, which by the way, was only three payments away from being paid off. So, you know, kind of depressing there. But when I did get into that rental car and drive again, I was really hyper vigilant. Now, I'd, I'd always thought I was vigilant when driving. Um, people used to tell me I drove like a little old lady because I always went the speed limit and I double checked things when I was at a stop sign. You know, I, I was just very, very so, you know, aware of my surroundings. Um, and in this case, I actually, on the next day following my accident, someone went through a red light and turned in front of me. Another person didn't stop at a stop sign until she was actually in the road. So, you know, those things really just made my heart jump, made me breathe a little bit faster. But as time's gone by, I'm, you know, not quite as jumpy. So if someone does look like they're not slowing down, I don't, you know, start to panic. But, you know, for the initial days, I really was, you know, very aware of my surroundings, more so after the accident, but that's actually gone away. So that's what I'm thinking about in terms of some of the residents of the town. Now, but what we do know is that Del Mar rebuilt again and again, never giving up the hope that they had to establish a strong city you know, to raise their families and to make a living, that the resilience they have in many ways has persevered to this day. And while I might wonder if it was complacency that allowed you know, the second fire to take hold as quickly as possible as it did, um, I wonder how many people thought to themselves each night if it was worth it to rebuild. But then they get up the next morning, take a look at the city and understand they have to get back to building again, that they were living in temporary shelters and they had to get back and you know, try to, their best to get back to the place that they were before. You know, so we're only human and we have moments of doubt and we have moments of hope. Both of those flash through our minds a hundred times a day. And I think many times it doesn't even register that we're thinking about these things. It takes us really taking those moments of hope and internalizing them and letting them take hold so that we know at certain times we have to act, we have to make changes, and we have to come back stronger. And it's in those next actions that build who we become as individuals and as a society. I hope you found this episode informing. Um, when I first started out on this, I had maybe about two pages of information, but it took a lot of digging because even when I would search certain terms, um, you know, comparing it, say, to the Chicago fire, 
you know, some of the episodes of the TV show. That was mainly the thing that came up. Um, to find a full article on the Del Mar fires was a little more difficult, but I did come across a rather intense document. And I mean, it was very, very detailed and it was because it was part of a survey and it really took a lot of the news articles from different um, you know, news outlets of the time and put a lot of that information together. So I did see the duplication in more than one document. So um, in closing, I do just want to ask that you know, if you do have the ability to go in and either subscribe, like, or comment on the podcast, it really does help. It does something with the algorithm that um, that particular podcast app or site uses, and it will you know, allow the podcast to show up earlier in um, searches that people are making. So I really do love um, doing this. I learn a lot and it does really show how far we've come even in a relatively short time. I hope everybody enjoys the rest of the week or I should say weekend at this point and that you have a good and safe Labor Day. Please be sure you know, that you're careful not only with the normal Labor Day activities, such as barbecuing, sailing, fishing, um, whatever you may do, but also just remember to be vigilant in you know, taking precautions for COVID and you know, stay outside if at all possible. Um, make sure you're wearing your masks if you're going to be inside in a you know, confined space. 